Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. share a couple things that typically are at the end, but I want to do that at the beginning because there's some really cool things. Um, over the last uh, few weeks, we've uh, had opportunity to give, to donate to crisis relief for those who've been deeply affected by the fires in Maui. And uh, over the last few weeks, uh, our church has given $25,000, over $25,000. Um, yes, yeah, that's awesome. Um, gosh, it's really incredible. And here, and I, I, wanna, I wanna bring this to like a very like flesh level. Um, we've given through a church called Harvest uh, Kumulani uh, in Maui. And um, we were communicating with uh, their executive pastor who lost his home in the fire. But he said that over the last week, their church has been packed with people. And last Sunday, 32 people gave their lives to Christ in that church that we're partnering with in Maui, which is just awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, for the next three weeks, we'll actually be shifting. If you, if you are giving towards disaster relief, if you're kind of feel compelled to give to that. Over the next three weeks, we're shifting and we're gonna be giving toward uh, relief in Florida and the Caribbean uh, with the hurricanes that have hit there recently. Um, thinking a little bit about <clears throat> what Travis kind of talked a little bit about this morning with, with Maui, with Morocco, the, the earthquake in Morocco, with, um, I mean, stuff happening all over in Florida, in the Caribbean. Um, there is no shortage of crisis to respond to. Um, I was reading an article the other day uh, that Israel is sending a crisis response team to Morocco. And uh, that is not unusual for Israel. In fact, Israel is kind of known for a couple things. One, for the, the, the size of their army, they're, they're one of the best militaries in the world. Um, but secondly, and maybe lesser known, is that is, Israel is... Um, by far the, the, the best at being equipped and prepared for crisis response. And they show up, they're on the scene globally um, the minute something happens. Um, in fact, they, they've been in this country um, as like the first, first group to respond, organized group to respond to different crises that have happened in our country. And, and they're sending a group to Morocco. It's, it, and it's interesting because... Um, a number of weeks back, uh, I, a group of us got to have lunch with a guy who is, uh, his name's Marco. He's a retired lieutenant colonel from the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force. And um, he's partnered, he's not a believer, but he's partnered with people who love Jesus in bringing relief and crisis response to uh, areas around them. In fact, they, they were able to send, um, not Israelis, because Israelis aren't welcome in Syria, but able to, on behalf of when he was actually working uh, with the IDF, able to send uh, actually people with the church into Syria to do relief to Syrian refugees when ISIS was, was, was uh, just wreaking havoc. Um, it's interesting because 
Marco, because of his interaction with a number of people in the Church of Jesus Christ, has um, come to conclude that the church, the evangelical church even, is Israel's greatest ally and helper. Um, and so I wanna share something with you this morning um, that you can learn more about next week after church in Park Place at 12.15 after the service. But um, Marco has invited us to participate in a pilot program that he's, being, he's putting together. He still has a lot of influence in Israel. And um, is, Israel has identified um, thousands upon thousands of sites in Israel that if there's a major earthquake in Israel, there's a rift that runs under the Dead Sea. And if, if that were to hit, um, tens of thousands sites in Israel would be devastated and they have figured out that their capacity to respond to total devastation is to about 40 of those locations. And so one of the things that Marvin's been thinking through is how can, can, can Israel, um, what can benefit Israel and how can Israel benefit the church? And so even though he's not a believer in Jesus, he believes that the church is, and even the mission of the church is a good thing. And so he actually invited us into a project called Project Genesis. And um, November 30th to December 9th, it's 10 days, um, we are invited to send a group of people, to, for a group of people to go who will actually train with the Israeli military um, not to learn fighting techniques, but um, to be taught by the Israeli military crisis response, search and rescue uh, for the first six of those 10 days and uh, Israel is, again, recognized globally as the, just uh, the kind of uh, premier of, of crisis response, training in level one uh, crisis response from the Israeli army. The last four days will be uh, special access tours throughout the southern part of Israel, Gaza Strip, Jerusalem, and some of those areas of seeing kind of like things that you don't really get on a Holy Land tour. Um, because you're actually meeting with people that, that are kind of restricted access and things like that and seeing that. And, and the point of, of this program, Genesis, is this, that as we're training those, those 10 days, we'll be, uh, we'll be in a community in Northern Israel, uh, a community building relationships with actual, with people in that community, establishing relationships, ultimately um, building friendships and being able to be uh, witnesses of how Jesus is working in our lives. Not only that, but but uh, on, on this side of things, with that training, if there's, a, if there's a handful of people in our church who go through this, we will already be trained for crisis response. The, the goal of Marvin, Marco is that if, if there's something that happens in Israel, they send out a call and those who are able can go to Israel and already be trained and ready to respond. But that group at our church would already be ready to to respond to things, whether it's something local, a wildfire, or it's something uh, in, in, in other parts of the world that we would actually not only, not only be able to send money to like Maui for, for, for relief for those who've been affected by the fire, but we could send a team that actually knows what they're doing and how to do search and rescue, how to uh, create, create a command post and, and actually organize ourselves so that we can be helped in distributing relief and that kind of stuff. Like what an awesome opportunity and unprecedented that, that a group of church people would be trained by the Israeli military to respond in crisis relief. So if that's something that you are interested in or you want more information, next week in Park Place at 12.15 after church, we're gonna have a 
short meeting where I can give you more detailed information. You can ask some questions. Um, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is how can I help our church prepare for what the Bible says, what Jesus says is, is gonna be happening more and more and coming? Um, how can we prepare to respond? Historically, those who love Jesus have run toward crisis, putting themselves in harm's way and bringing the, the light of Jesus with them. And when, at that lunch with Marco, I was blown away by what God dropped in our laps. Um, and so if that interests you, if you, if you even and if you, if you think I would not do that, but I would be interested in learning more, um, join us next week. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're in Acts chapter 18 this morning, um, starting in, in, uh, in verse 24. I, I believe what, what this, the narrative that we have today is a little, is a little bit, is a little bit complex <laughs> because it kind of raises questions about the, the, the people that, that are in the narrative. And, and, but I also think that the passage today brings up something that is critical for us to be walking consistently with Jesus in our lifetime. And, and I think this passage actually explains a lot about the lack of power and the lack of um, effectiveness in the, in the church today. And so I think it's pretty critical for us to understand. I wanna make a couple things so that we're really clear as to what I'm talking about because, because we're getting into like tribal areas here because we're gonna be talking about the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there's different tribes in Christianity that are like, that define those things very different ways. And some of them don't even talk about it. Some of them talk about nothing but that. And so I wanna make sure that, that at least for this context, you understand what I'm saying and where I'm coming from. And that's, and that's this, is that there are two things. There are two things that are descriptors of, of the Holy Spirit. One is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And then I believe the Bible then describes one other thing, which is called the baptism or the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, not everyone agrees with that, but that's where I'm coming from this morning right now, is that there's the infilling, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and then the baptism or filling of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit happens when we receive forgiveness of our sins and Jesus redeems us and makes us his own. He gives us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us and that is something that Jesus does that we don't deserve, that we don't earn, that we don't work for, but he does that. That's what Jesus does and he gives us and the Holy Spirit that is living inside of us. The baptism or filling of the Holy Spirit is something that happens on a continual basis. Sometimes you're filled with the Spirit, sometimes you're not. You're always filled with something, just not always the Spirit. And so, so for an example, this past week, um, got an email from another staff person and there was something in it that, that felt a little bit, little bit like got me a little riled. And so I responded, not filled with the Holy Spirit, but filled with me. Um, and so I sent an email that would pretty much be more characteristic of me, not necessarily of the Holy Spirit. And so pretty quick after that, I felt pretty convicted. And so being more filled with the Holy Spirit than me, I went over and I apologized and, and ask for forgiveness for sending that email. In the course of an hour, I was not filled with the Holy Spirit 
And then I was filled with the Holy Spirit because Matt doesn't make, Matt can make a lot of excuses why that email was fine. But the entire day, the Spirit was always living within me. Does that make sense? You follow that? And, and, so, and so that's what I'm talking about today is, is I'm not, and here's, here's a simple way to say, I don't know that I love these terms, but, but I'll, I'll throw this out. Um, what I believe is once Jesus, and because of his blood and his sacrifice, his resurrection and his ascension, once he grants us the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're stuck with the Holy Spirit. But filling is something I have to pursue daily, moment by moment, numerous times a day. And I would, to put it really simple, I believe that once we are saved, we are always saved. But once we are filled, we are not always filled. That makes sense? Jesus does this work of salvation in our lives, but we have to work with him in the filling of the spirit. We have to be receptive and open. So I wanna make that as kind of the, 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 the foundation of what we're talking through this morning, the lens that we're looking. Um, Jesus says in John 14, 25, he says this, these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he, the Holy Spirit, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In the opinion of Jesus, how important is the Holy Spirit to live a life that is pleasing to God? Scale of one to 10, one low, 10 being most important. What would you say Jesus would land on? The Holy Spirit being important to live your life pleasing God. Yeah, this one goes to 11. Anyway, so, so yes, I, I, would, I would say it's super important, very important. Jesus has a very, very high view of the Holy Spirit's work and our dependence on him. And, and so he says, what is he gonna do? He's going to guide you. He will teach you all things and he will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. It sounds like in the opinion of Jesus, we cannot be successful as we follow Christ if we are not depending actively on the Holy Spirit, right? That's from Jesus. That's not from the Southern Baptist Convention. That's not from the Pentecostals. That is from Jesus. Okay, so forget about everything else. That's from Jesus. He says, you will be taught and you will remember based on your relationship with the Holy Spirit who is living inside of you. In other words, your fullness of the Holy Spirit. So according to Jesus, an active relationship with the Holy Spirit is critical for a life of faithfulness and obedience to God. So remember that, and let's get into the text. Uh, Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. In other words, the baptism of Jesus. And when he wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing the scriptures 
by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So, so the first part of our text this morning has to do with this guy, Apollos, who is this very skillful, naturally skilled orator. He's, he's a great communicator and he believes in Jesus. And so he's going around preaching about Jesus, but it says that he only knew about the baptism of John. So there's two baptisms talked about in the New Testament, particularly the gospel. There's the baptism of John, John, who was to prepare the way for Jesus, and there was the baptism of Jesus, which Jesus talks about and John alludes to. And so there's three things that are primarily characterized by the baptism of John. First is that John, his baptism preaches a forgiveness of sin is only possible with repentance. Now that differed from the ways the Jews looked at that because they didn't really see repentance or they didn't functionally live in repentance. They more lived in bringing an animal, sacrificing it at the temple, and that covered their sins. And while repentance was a part of that, it wasn't the main focus. John changed that and said, forgiveness, who cares about animal sacrifice? John says, forgiveness of sins comes from repentance, a change in heart. And the second characteristic of John's baptism was that repentance is publicly expressed in baptism. So what they're doing, and again, baptism was a normal, familiar thing with the Jews, except it was a ceremonial cleanliness thing. It was not about repentance of the heart. And so when John, his teaching was that repentance is visibly seen by others in the community through baptism, through dying to myself and raising with Christ. Now, he didn't say raising with Christ at the time because Christ hadn't died or raised the third characteristic is that, that part of John's baptism is that there is one coming who will complete what I have begun. begun. He says, I baptize with water, but he, the one who comes after me, because John the Baptist was preparing the way, he will baptize with the Spirit. And so that's, that's John's baptism. And it says that Apollos only knew of John's baptism. So John didn't understand by what we see in scripture, the work or the, 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 the station of the Holy Spirit. He only knew of John's baptism, that there was, that John baptized with water, and that there would be one who came. Now he preached Jesus, but he didn't understand, seemingly, he didn't understand or comprehend the, the work and the, and the nature and the place of the Holy Spirit in walking with Christ. And, and so it says that Priscilla and Aquila, who we met last week, um, remember they, they went where they were kind of run out of Rome by the emperor and they lived there in Ephesus and Paul lived with them because they were fellow tent makers and they were evangelizing and sharing the gospel there in Ephesus. And it's interesting to me, and, and, and it's interesting to me that earlier in, in Acts 18, it says Aquila and Priscilla, but then here when they run into Apollos, it says Priscilla and Aquila, it switches the order of the names. Now people can make all kinds of speculations of why that happened and relate it to all kinds of things. Here's, here's where I'm gonna land on that. I believe that, that Luke wrote in Acts the switching of names from the husband to the wife and then the wife first to the husband because they were a discipleship couple and in discipleship, there is no hierarchy, period. 
Doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, if you are, when we are called to disciple and that is an equal calling on everyone. And it's not that Apollos or that Aquila took the lead in discipling Apollos. We don't know that. There's no indication of that. What we see is he mentions Priscilla first, then Aquila. And I think it's not to say who was the leader. I think it's to say that they were discipling. And there's no hierarchy or authoritarianship in discipleship. You make disciples, period. Now, I would say that Priscilla and Aquila were like the, the, like, you know how we have like celebrity power couples and, you know, you kind of blend their names. From here on out, I'm referring to Priscilla and Aquila as Perquilla, okay? Because I feel like that they are deserving of that designation. Um, so, 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 so they, they meet with and explain to Apollos Basically, the baptism of Jesus, they explained to him things that he didn't understand. And what we see, which is interesting, is from that point forward, Apollos' ministry seems to be infused with more power post his interaction with Perquilla. He seemed to understand and engage the Holy Spirit in the role that the Holy Spirit was given by Jesus. And, and, and so we, we see him moving forward in, in his ministry. Jump back down to chapter 19. Uh, chapter 19, it says, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, Paul is now in Ephesus. Apollos went on to Corinth and now he's preaching and teaching there in the power of the Holy Spirit as he follows Jesus. And by the way, um, both these 12 men in Ephesus that Paul runs into and Apollos, scholars and theologians who would be where we are in scriptural biblical authority pretty much agree consistently that Apollos and these 12 disciples were believers in Jesus and they had, they had received salvation. So that's a generalized agreement. Not everyone agrees with that, but I would, I would fall there as well. So it says, as it happened, Paulus goes to Corinth, Paul passes through the inland country, comes to Ephesus, there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Believed in who? Jesus. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed in Jesus? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized, a little different than what Perquilla did with Apollos. But with these 12 men, they were baptized on hearing this, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues. The tongues here are foreign languages that they had not learned, and prophesying, prophesying being preaching and teaching the word of God in a way that is convincing and powerful and relevant. There were about 12 men in all. And so then Paul entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, technically the hall of Darth Tyrannus. The Greek for Darth Tyrannus is Count Dooku. Uh, Ephesus was a separatist 
community, but I digress. Um, not all of that is true, but I believe it. Um, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So here's what's going on in, in this part of the narrative. Paul comes upon these disciples, 12 men who don't, aren't really understanding or familiar with the work of the Holy Spirit, but they are disciples and they're following Jesus. And, and so Paul says, well, what were you baptized under? And he said, well, we were baptized in the baptism of John. And here's the thing. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance leading to an exchange of loyalty or allegiance to someone who was to come. But the baptism of Jesus that Paul talks about is a baptism of repentance and surrender to Jesus Christ and complete reliance on the Holy Spirit. That's the baptism of Jesus. And I would probably summarize it this way. John's baptism is directional. It starts with repentance pointing to one who would come after. Does that make sense? That makes sense to you? It is directional. It, it cleans house and it points us in a direction. But the baptism of Jesus is a baptism of transformation. And I would put it this way. John is the forerunner preparing the way for Jesus and then Jesus comes and he finishes everything and transforms us. And so basically what John's baptism did was say, hey, Matt, you need to get your house in order. You need to clean your house out. Your house, I need to be emptied out and clean for allegiance and loyalty to someone else. Not myself, not all the things that I've been loyal to before, but I need a house cleaning. I need to empty everything else. And that's the baptism of John where clearing the house and preparing it for someone else to move in. And then the baptism of Jesus is Jesus sending the spirit to move in. And he doesn't just move into my house, he renovates everything so it looks nothing like it did before. See how John's baptism was directional, giving us a direction, pointing us here. And Jesus' baptism is transformational. He transforms us and makes us someone who we could never be without the Holy Spirit. And so the evidence of the Spirit coming in that moment was that Paul lays his hands on, on these 12 men and they start to speak in foreign languages that they didn't learn and they have prophetic speech. And, and, so, and so now their lives and ministries are very different. But it's the difference between the Holy Spirit being indwelling versus the Holy, being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the difference there. Okay, so the, the, the last part of the passage, which is, which is super important, but we'll come back to the Holy Spirit in a second. It says that Paul spent two years in Ephesus preaching and teaching. And the, the scripture says, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All of Asia includes a lot of these cities that, were, that Paul writes letters to. But here's what's interesting. Paul did not travel to or visit all of those cities in Asia. One in particular, he didn't go to Colossae. He wrote Colossians, a letter to the believers in Colossae, but he never went to that city or visited that church. In fact, in, in, the, in the letter of Corinthians, it said, or in the letter of Colossians, it says, uh, I've heard about you, I haven't met you, 
but I've heard about you. Do you know how the gospel and a church got established in Colossae? Epaphras, who was a believer under Paul's ministry in Ephesus, was sent and went to Colossae and started a church. He did discipleship and planted a church in Colossae. And even in the letter that Paul writes to the believers and the Colossian believers, he writes, I've heard of you, I've heard reports of you from Epaphras. And here's the thing that we need to understand that, that from Ephesus, Paul didn't go out to every city, but the nature and the posture of the church in Ephesus is that it was a sending church, it was not a staying church. And actually, all of the churches established in the New Testament are sending churches. Sending is not a line in the budget. It's sending is not for just a select few people. Sending was a normal thing that the church was about. It was not a staying church. And the gospel reached all of Asia in that time because the churches were focused on sending. See, in, in the the... the the idea was, was not that, that there was, that sending was for a select few, but it was something that every person considered, but not every person went. It's interesting in, in the Moravian church, if you know anything about that, this was a group of believers who left Bavaria back in the 1700s because of persecution and ended up in Germany in this wealthy, noble Count Zinzendorf's property, and he gave them some land called Hernhut. And this Moravian church was born there, a group of believers. And what's interesting about the Moravian church is even though it never got to be huge, it actually started the modern missions movement in a very good way. And, and what's interesting, the way they did things, and regardless of if I think this is the best way to do things, or not, but what they would do each year is they would draw lots and decide who was going to places they had heard about that doesn't have the gospel. So anyone in their community was going to possibly be a missionary. And what the rest of the community would do is they would take care of your responsibilities there. No one went for life as a missionary. No one stayed at home for life unless, because they were, it was very possible that the lot would fall on them. And I think it's interesting that, that what they did was very much like the church in Ephesus and the churches that Paul writes to and the churches in the New Testament. It's only later that the church grew to a point where it became a staying church and set things up for itself in its little community and its little place. I think we could learn a lot from what Paul just, what's described here with Paul. And I think we could learn a lot from the Moravian church. I think we've built our lives so much that most of us could not imagine going to another people and bringing the gospel because everything would fall apart here. It's interesting how communally the, the Moravians lived so that anyone could go at any time and other people would make sure things are taken care of back home. It just kind of makes me wonder about how, like last week I mentioned that there's the gospel of the land and the, the gospel of the kingdom. Sometimes I wonder if the way I live is, participates with the gospel of the kingdom very well. So, so what about these stories about the Holy Spirit and Apollos and these 12 disciples? 
the theme here in this passage seems to be of people coming as far as repentance and forgiveness of sins, but not knowing or understanding how to live life forward in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it seems to be. It seems to be there's a, there's a, is a hiccup when it comes to the, the place and the, 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 the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells the Ephesian believers about the death, resurrection of Jesus and the fulfilled promise of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit has already come. Life in Christ does not happen apart from the continuous moment by moment, day by day experience and expression of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Again, we are, if we have received salvation from Jesus, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He lives in us, period. But we are not always filled with the Holy Spirit. We are not always surrendered to the Holy Spirit. We're not always submissive to the Holy Spirit. We're not always obedient to the Holy Spirit. We have to be continuously, repeatedly filled, baptized by the Holy Spirit so that we walk in him. Because again, the default setting that you and I are in is that we are more filled with us than we are with the Spirit. As we become more intimate and surrender to Jesus, that becomes easier to live in that place. But it's not that one time I got filled by the Spirit and I'm filled for the rest of my life. Just ask anyone around you and they'll tell you that that's true of you. <laughs> and, and so the question that I think we have to answer for ourselves today is, have you received the Holy Spirit today? And again, I'm not talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit today? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit right now? And again, we're talking terms and things like that and trying to bring some clarification, but, but, but I mean, saying, God, fill me today. God, be everything to me. God, I wanna obey you in everything. So, so God, remind me all day long that you're with me. That's the same thing. But, but I believe that we're, we're called to pursue and ask the Holy Spirit every day. It says it throughout the New Testament. It says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Over and over it says that. John 6, 28 says this. It, it's, it's that the crowd asked Jesus, they, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent, he has sent. So in other words, he says, you believe who God sent. He sent me, Jesus. And then Jesus says to us, you believe who I sent. He says, God sends through me the Holy Spirit. So how do you do the works of God? You believe that the Holy Spirit is living in you and that you must pursue his filling every single day, moment by moment. Colossians 2 verse six says this, therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Okay, according to Jesus, who teaches us and who reminds us of what Jesus said? The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is critical in that thing that Paul says, therefore walk in Christ. How do you walk in Christ? By being filled with the Holy Spirit. By being surrendered and submissive to the Holy Spirit. Scripture is clear that we can, we can have salvation and not be filled with the Spirit. And so are you living in the sterility or the deadness and dullness of religiosity without the spirit or are you living in the fullness, the freshness and the vigor and power of a spirit-filled life? And I know lots of people 
in this church who, who, who just are models and examples to me of being continually spirit-filled. And those same people that I see as models, also I see moments when they are full of themselves. Because <laughs> that's how we are. And that's how it works. And yet they continue to pursue that baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 says this. And while staying with them, Jesus, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the world the earth. In other words, what Jesus is saying there is you will receive extraordinary power when the Holy Spirit is filling you to deny yourself because we cannot deny ourselves without the Holy Spirit and to live into a Christ exalting ministry to others. This is not a single event but a necessary filling and empowering that happens again and again and again and again in our lives. We don't have to accept Jesus over again and again and again, but we do need to be filled with the Spirit again and again and again. See, I think however you wanna say it, whatever terms you wanna use, I think that, that, that I, Scripture teaches us that we need to seek a fresh baptism, a fresh filling every day throughout the day. Every believer has the spirit dwelling within them. But a fresh baptism or filling of the spirit begins with intentional intimacy, active surrender, and a focused obedience towards Christ. That's the door opening to the fullness of the spirit. That's the door that opens us up to the filling of the Spirit in our lives daily. It's easy to think, well, if you're Spirit-filled, you're, some people say, well, it's all about emotion. Other people say, well, it's all about information you know, and then you have this rock-solid belief. Guess what? The Spirit works all over the place. I love how Andrew Murray describes the baptism or the filling of the Spirit day by day by day. And here's what he says. I love this. The way in which the baptism comes may be very different. To some, it comes as a glad and sensible quickening of their spiritual life. They are so filled with the Spirit that all their feelings are stirred. They can speak of something they have distinctly experienced as a gift from the Father. To others, that filling is given not to their feelings, but to their faith. It comes as a deep, quiet, but clearer insight into the faithfulness of the Spirit in Christ as indeed being theirs. And listen to this. And a faith that feels confident that Jesus' sufficiency is equal to every emergency that may arise. In the midst of weakness, they know that the power is resting on them. In either case, they know that the blessing has been given from above to be maintained under obedience and deep dependence on him from whom it came. All of this is to empower us for global Christ-exalting effectiveness. 
from my neighbor to every nation. And so the question for us is simply this. Am I moment by moment, day by day, pursuing and asking to be filled with the Spirit so that he can teach me so that he can bring to my remembrance everything that Jesus did. So that I, in my life, can best lift up Christ to anyone who's around me. Am I doing that? Because so many people have lived so much of their life with Christ in abject poverty of the spirit. And that's not how Jesus called us to the abundant life. He called us to walk in him and to walk in him is to be walking in the fullness of the spirit. So it doesn't matter what tribe we come from within Christianity. Jesus says this, that you will receive the Holy Spirit and he will indwell in you. But you have to pursue him day day after day after day to be filled with his power and to be obedient to the things that I've commanded. Jesus, that night that he was arrested, he, he said this to his disciples. He said, I have eagerly wanted to gather and share this with you. Jesus said at the gathering of his disciples, in the upper room, he said, I so want to spend this time with you. Jesus eagerly wanted to spend this time with him. Jesus loved being with his disciples. Jesus loves being with us. But here's what's interesting. Out of the other side of his mouth, he said, and it's better for me to go away because if I don't go, you won't have the spirit. Part of what we remember in communion is this, that Jesus loves being with his people. And he loves his people so much that he's willing to be distant so the Holy Spirit can indwell and fill us because that's better. And so Jesus took, took the bread and, and he broke it. And he said, when you do this, remember what I've done. And how do we remember what Jesus did? Who helps us remember? The Spirit. So it's really interesting how the Spirit, by the words Jesus used, was critical in communion in the Last Supper. So, so when you do this, remember that this is my body broken for you, and he invited them to eat together. And then Jesus took the cup. They said, this is the, the cup, the blood of the covenant, that I make with you. It's not just a, co a covenant of repentance that leads to an empty home. It's the covenant of repentance that leads into a transformed, fully renovated place that the spirit lives in. This is when you take this, remember that, that you are transformed. You are not the same. He said, take this together. Jesus, we thank you for 
how much you love being with us. And we thank you for not only the sacrifice of your life, but also for the sacrifice of going, of going away so that we can have the spirit. God, I pray today that you would clarify any words that I used or any things that I said that were unclear and that God, you would move in a way in our midst that those who have a, a rhythm of, of, of pursuing fullness of the spirit um, would be encouraged. And those who, who maybe are like those 12 in Ephesus or Apollos who, who haven't just been not sure about what the spirit does, that they would engage you, Holy Spirit. That, that we would be a church that is truly full of the spirit. Thank you, Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point.